Good evening and welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shante Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day. And if you're not having a great and wonderful day, hopefully a part of this conversation will motivate you and inspire you in some way. If you're with me for the first time, please feel free to say hello in the comments. If you are a replay viewer or a replay listener, if you're listening by Anchor, um, please make sure you leave me a message and tell me what you thought about the show, as well as tell me where you are listening or watching from. You can put in your country or your state. You don't have to put in your city, but either one of those is fine, just so I can uh, greet you down in the comment section. So good evening. We're back again. If you're with me for the first time, we are doing what we call here our Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, where we talk all things belief, philosophy, faith, etc. And we do some reading. We read aloud. So for those of you who are looking for a way to read lots of books at, at the same time, this is the perfect platform for you because we're always reading something aloud here and digging into that information that we read. I like to say we are the adult version of reading Rainbow here. So if you are driving, you can always replay this and listen to it um, while you're driving. Or if you um, wanna check us out on Anchor, anchor.fm forward slash Daring Dialogues, you can listen to the playback on our podcast by the same name. Tonight, we are digging back into the book, White Too Long by Robert P. Jones, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. I find this book to be very interesting and very timely, um, namely because Robert is not necessarily saying something that other black scholars, black Christians, black theologians have not said. Um, What makes his book important at this moment in time is that he is a white male who is saying it. And uh, what we've come to find out, unfortunately, is many times when African-Americans are saying these things, people who are in um, Christian reformations don't tend to want to hear it from us. So I applaud Robert P. Jones for coming out of the box swinging with some necessary truths um, because he grew up Southern Baptist. So maybe they can hear him a little bit better, right? It shouldn't be necessary. You know, truth should be able to come from whoever it comes from. But unfortunately, with the with the way of human nature, we tend to hear our own a little better than if it's coming from somebody outside of our ethos. So we're jumping back in. We are about, I would say, maybe 40% through this um, book. We are in the chapter entitled Believing. We're on page 101 for those of you who may have the book and are following along. And we're getting ready to read the section called The Bible and the Social Status Quo. The Bible and the Social Status Quo. And then we are going to conclude this chapter and hop into chapter four, which talks about monuments to white supremacy. We aren't going to get through it but we are gonna find a good stopping point into the next chapter. So, here we go. White evangelicals have generally claimed that their worldview and theology 
are derived directly from a straightforward reading of an inerrant Bible, and thus by extension, a direct reflection of God's will. But the evidence suggests that it is more accurate to say that white evangelicals, like everyone who engages the text, read their worldview back into the Bible. In human hands, the Bible is as much a screen as a projector. While their fellow black Christians were reading liberation stories from Exodus and prophets such as Amos and Hosea, who were calling for social and economic justice, white evangelicals stayed focused more narrowly on the gospels and the writings of Paul to early Christian churches, which were interpreted more easily to be about salvation, right relationships, maintaining order, and keeping the peace. In the hands of clergy committed to white supremacy, cultural selectivity was as effective as the actual redactions in the slave Bible on display at the Museum of the Bible. This piecemeal approach, which might as well have been captioned with the parallel inscription, parts of the Holy Bible selected for the use of the slave owners in the United States, had the effect of neutralizing calls for racial justice and social change. White Christian selectivity harnessed the Bible in service of maintaining the current status quo, which conveniently was structured to maintain white supremacy. Even as social norms gradually changed in favor of recognizing greater rights and equality for black Americans, white evangelicals called on this individualist reading of the Bible to distance themselves from fully embracing these changes. During the debates over the morality of slavery, its white evangelical defenders typically held the upper hand when debates were restricted to biblical arguments. They could straightforwardly outquote the abolitionists, citing examples of explicit support for slavery and numerous places where the Bible notes the existence of the practice and fails to condemn it. And more fundamentally, they pointed to verses that they claim legitimize the racial supremacy of whites over blacks as the divinely ordained form of relationship between the races. Abolitionists had a more complicated task. At the most basic level, they concentrated on drawing awareness to the brutality of slavery as it was practiced. This allowed them to avoid direct biblical debates by distinguishing between what were perhaps more benign instances of slavery in the Bible and harsher contemporary realities. Now, I'm going to pause here because um, one thing, number one, if you actually study the original text, you will find that the words slave and master are not mentioned in the original text. So you have to go back and you have to say, why is it that these words were inserted into the English interpretations that we now read? Um, there was words like bond servant, right? There were some instances of, um, what the Bible really is talking about is indentured servitude, which is very, very different than what America churned out. They went from indentured servitude to what we would call chattel slavery or literally slave breeding, which is not something that is a prescription to do in the scriptures. It's not there. Um, so you have people at this time that were reading things into the text to justify 
what they were doing to human beings. There was no justification for it. If they went further, and many did not, they had to make more general arguments about the centrality of principles of love and equality to Christianity. And then they had to argue further that these principles should apply to social and political life as well as personal life. But white evangelicals with their individualist toolkits were primed and equipped to reject both lines of argument. The brutality of slavery they dismissed as acts of particular individuals rather than a broad pattern. And the broad application of love and equality was denigrated as a move that illegitimately brought politics by which they meant anything social or structural into religion. Um, Even as early as or as late as yesterday, there was a conversation um, that, that someone I know was taking part of and they were talking about racism. And the person was an evangelical and they specifically went to, well, all, all sin is evil, right? They did not want to name racism specifically as a sin. They also didn't see racism as um, something that is structural. They kept saying it was something individual. This goes back to this whole doctrine surrounding the belief or um, individual sins need to be dealt with or personal sins need to be dealt with. But again, societal or structural things are something that a lot of them don't believe in. So trying to trying to have that conversation with uh, people who only see racism as an individual personal thing can be challenging. A century later, during the civil rights movement, this template was still functioning. When Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. began to gain traction on the American conscience by citing the prophetic tradition of the Bible, praying with the prophet Amos that God would let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, white evangelical leaders tried to undermine his work as illegitimate. Just weeks after Bloody Selma in Bloody Sunday, excuse me, in Selma, Alabama, in 1965, the Reverend Jerry Falwell gave this response in a sermon. Quote, believing the Bible as I do, I would find it impossible to stop preaching the pure saving gospel of Jesus Christ and begin doing anything else, including the fighting of communism or participating in the civil rights reform. Preachers are not called to be politicians, but to be soul winners. Now, This is the guy who founded Liberty University that ironically, many African-Americans matriculate through and receive their degrees. The founder of that university didn't feel like the civil rights movement was important enough to engage. Just let that sink in. Of course, Falwell eventually reversed himself, founding his own political organization, quote, The Moral Majority, in 1979 and becoming a major player on the political right. The precipitating event that changed his tune, Falwell was enraged that Bob Jones University, a conservative white Christian institution, ironically, another institution that African-Americans are still giving their money to, (laughs) had lost its tax exempt status in 1976 
because it refused to rescind its racially discriminatory policies. Shortly after that decision, Falwell preached, quote, the idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. So again, once the topics or once the concern hit home, all of a sudden he reverses his position. While this sentiment is a complete repudiation of his former declaration, the about face is consistent if it's understood as a mere tactic change to an underlying commitment of defending white supremacist status quo. When white supremacy was still safely ensconced in the wider culture, white evangelicals argued that the Bible mandated a privatized religion. Your faith was your faith, your faith was personal, and it didn't necessarily require you to get involved in the political process. This was a powerful way of delegitimizing the work of black ministers who were all being tied to the political process because they understood that justice was a part of their faith. So the position that they took delegitimized the work of black ministers who were already working for black equality. But as these forces gained power, white evangelicals discovered a biblical mandate for political organizing and resistance. In other words, they jumped into the fray because for them, their organizing and resistance was about resisting black equality. (laughs) The historical contradictions between the various confident declarations about biblical teachings on race by white Christians are head spinning. As a social consensus coalesced around the immorality and sinfulness of slavery following the Civil War, white evangelicals retreated from the previously unflinching claims of biblical support for slavery. And only just recently, as Americans are beginning to name white supremacy now as a social sin, white evangelicals have also repudiated their previous and equally confident claims that the separation of the races was an obvious biblical dictate. Having reluctantly conceded these points, with concessions coming only after they have become socially unacceptable, white evangelicals incredibly continue to assert that their current theological conclusions are derived directly from an inerrant Bible. There is stronger evidence that it is the other way around, that white Christians' cultural worldview with an unacknowledged white supremacy sleeping at the core has been read back into the Bible. And if this is true, a deeper interrogation of the entire theological worldview, including our understanding and use of the Bible, and even core theological doctrines of a personal relationship with Jesus is in order. Unless we find the courage to face these appalling errors of our recent past, white Christians should probably avoid any further proclamations about, quote, what the Bible teaches or what biblical worldviews demand. This theological worldview, lost cause theology, premillennialism, and an individualist view of sin, an emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus and the Bible as the protector of the status quo, has created a mutually reinforcing, closed habit of thought amongst white evangelicals. The system protects white Christian interests on the one hand and white consciences on the other. In return, 
white Christians defend the system from external critique, relying on the cultural toolkit it provides. Lost cause theology with its underlying commitment to preserving white supremacy has proven remarkably durable, even as it has adapted to the new times. Its main contours are still discernible in dynamics that drive our politics today. Paul Harvey, historian at University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, summarized the lost cause narrative this way. Quote, ultimately, white spiritual leaders preached a sanctified, purified white South would rise from the ashes to serve as God's, quote, last and only hope in a modernizing and secularizing nation. Writing in the mid-1960s, cultural anthropologist Anthony Wallace described lost cause religion as a revivalist movement aiming to restore a golden age believed to have existed in society's past, terms eerily close to a contemporary call by the former president to make America great again. It is true that old school lost cause theology is rarely aired in the mainstream white churches today, but its direct descendant, the individualist theology that insists that Christianity has little to say about social injustice creates created to shield white conscience from the evils and continued legacy of slavery and segregation does live on, not just in white evangelical churches, but also increasingly in white mainline and white Catholic churches as well. Now, I'm going to pause here because um, one of the things that I have noticed, and maybe someone else has done this, but I've been doing this lately, is the people that I have seen that are well-known, whether they be um, public figures, whether they be well-known singers in Christian industry. Anytime I see their stuff scroll through my newsfeed now, I immediately go to their page and I scroll back. I scroll back to November, 2020, cause I wanna see what they were posting during that time. And I, then I scroll forward to January 6, 2021. Those two dates in time, that month, November 2020, and January 6, 2021, if you start scrolling back through some of these people's timelines, it will give you a good idea and a good picture of what their theology is. And if I read on somebody's page something about it's not over, (laughs) the election was stolen, um... It was good that the Capitol was stormed. Like if you are championing white supremacy, because there was wording that lets me know that you are championing it, championing it, you are gonna be taken off of my feed, my news feed. If I know you personally, you've already been unfriended and blocked. So if you wanna say, hmm, What is a good gauge to figure out who is actually operating under some of these things? Go back to their news feed. Go back to their public figure page feed between November 2020 and January 6, 2021. And that'll start to give you a picture of who has actually been feeding into this idea of we've got to go back. We've got to 
um, you know, go back to a time that uplifts Christianity over everyone else. We tend to often talk about being equal in this country, but the way that some of these people believe, they're not talking about being equal. They're talking about elevating themselves and their faith over everyone else. And to be honest, that hasn't ever turned out well for black people at all. (laughs) Let me keep reading. To be sure, this theological worldview has done great damage to those living outside the white Christian canopy, even to those who are black and Christian. But what has been overlooked by most white Christian leaders is the damage this legacy has done to white Christians themselves. To put it succinctly, it has often put white Christians in the curious position of arguing that their religion and their God require them to aim lower than the highest values of love, of justice, of equality, and of compassion. As antebellum Presbyterian preacher Donald Fraser argued emphatically, many abolitionists had the shoe on the wrong foot by pretending to be more humane than God. It was God's law, not human conscience, that set the limits on the treatment of blacks by whites, this man argued. Moral discomfort, even moral horror or outrage, has no place in this theological worldview. But surely it should give white Christians pause to continue to pledge allegiance to a theological system that contradicts rather than expands their moral vision. These contradictions are not just theoretical. Increasing anxieties around the perceived decline of white identity and white Christian culture are actually driving white and right-wing extremism, both at home here and abroad. What these movements get right is that those who have assembled under the banner of whiteness have lost something vital in this struggle for power. Their hope is that they will regain a secure identity by re-enthroning white Christian dominance through xenophobic politics and a culture war based on violence and terrorism. But there is a better, more realistic path forward. Confronting a theology built for white supremacy would be a critical first step. For white Christians who want to recover a connection, not just to our fellow African-American Christians, but also to our own identity, and more importantly, our humanity. Chapter four, monuments to white supremacy. The largest post-Civil War gathering to honor the Confederacy occurred not in the 19th century, but on June 3, 1907, more than four decades after General Robert E. Lee surrendered the last major Confederate army to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. An estimated 200,000 people, including 18,000 former Confederate soldiers, gathered in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy, to witness the dedication of an elaborate monument to Jefferson Davis, the former Confederate president, on what would have been his 99th birthday. The five-day celebration included the annual reunion of the United Confederate Veterans and a convergence of numerous Southern Women's Associations, most prominently the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The driving force 
behind the Confederate monument movement. On the evening of Wednesday, May 29th, there was a reception of the Allied Men's and Ladies Confederate groups to kick off the celebration. On Thursday and Friday, May 30th and 31st, there were joint business meetings of the UDC and other related women's groups, which were hosted at the Second Baptist Church, followed on Friday evening by a reception at Richmond's Confederate Museum and a ball. Saturday, June 1st, activities included a visit to veteran residents of the nearby Robert E. Lee Camp Confederate Soldiers Home and a former reception with the Virginia Governor and First Lady at the Executive Mansion. Sunday, June 2nd was left free for the Sabbath to allow worship at local churches. All of this built up to the day of the monument dedication on Monday, June 3rd. The ceremonies were drenched in the white Christian theology of the lost cause. The official program for the event noted that there would be special services in all Richmond churches in the morning before the main unveiling event and special services in city churches and sacred concerts at the horse show building in the evening. Even the business meetings and other less ceremonious events kicked off with prayer by a local pastor or by well-known Southern Baptist Reverend Dr. J. William Jones, a Virginian and the Chaplain General for the United Confederate Veterans, whom historian Charles Reagan Wilson dubbed the Evangelist of the Lost Cause. Jones, who had personally helped raise $10,000 for the Davis Monument, was also popular for rousing prayers that began with the invocation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God of Israel, God of the centuries, God of our fathers, God of Jefferson Davis, Robert Edward Lee, and Stonewall Jackson, Lord of hosts and King of kings. Oh, the irony. After the morning church services, the town reassembled for an elaborate parade to the memorial site. As the surviving Confederate veterans led the processional forward, the band played Dixie and other Confederate favorites such as My Maryland. While My Maryland is less known today, it was a Confederate favorite because it paid tribute to a state that while officially part of the Union, was nevertheless a slave state situated south of the Mason-Dixon line and home to many Southern sympathizers. Set to the tune of Old Tannenbaum, the song was penned in 1861 by James Ryder Randall, a Georgian living in Baltimore, as a tribute to what became known as the Pratt Street Riots, in which Southern sympathizers attacked Union soldiers as they marched through Baltimore en route to Washington. In contrast, the rose-colored nostalgia of Dixie, the lyrics of My Maryland are more bellicose. Here are the lyrics. Thou will not yield the vandal toll, Maryland, my Maryland. Thou will not crook his control, Maryland, my Maryland. Better the fire upon the roll, better the blade, the shot, the bowl, than crucifixion of the soul, Maryland, my Maryland. I hear the distant thunder hum, Maryland, my Maryland. The old lines bugle, fife and drum, Maryland, my Maryland. She is not dead, nor deaf, nor dumb. Huzza, she spurns the northern scum. She breathes, she burns, she'll come. Maryland, my Maryland. 
After the veteran Collins leading members of the UDC marched, followed by a group of white children dressed in the colors of the Confederacy, who pulled the Veil Monument through the streets on a wheeled platform to its final resting place. Present on the platform were various descendants of the Confederate royalty, such as Mary Anna Jackson, General Stonewall Jackson's widow, and Mary Lee, the daughter of Robert E. Lee. After an opening prayer, the crowd was addressed first by Virginia Governor Claude Swanson, and then by the orator of the day, Clement Evans, a revered former Confederate general turned influential Methodist minister. Finally, Margaret Howell Jefferson Hayes, the only surviving child of Jefferson Davis and her two sons pulled the ropes to unveil the monument to thunderous applause punctuated by rebel yells. The monument to Jefferson Davis had been delayed for nearly two decades after his death, mostly because the members wanted to make it to the president of the Confederacy, especially in the former capital of the Confederacy, and they wanted it to be grand. They didn't disappoint. The final structure, which carried a price tag of $50,000, approximately $1.4 million today, featured at its center a bronze statue of Davis of heroic size, standing atop a 12-foot pedestal. He is speaking with outstretched arm, designed to depict his farewell speech to the Senate. The text of that speech wraps around the curving base of the columns, which represent the states of the Confederacy. Behind the Davis statue is a massive column topped with a female statue that UDC materials describe as the one whose right hand points to heaven. In other words, saying that what happened with the Confederacy was God-ordained. The combined measurements of the monument are 50 feet by 30 feet deep and 70, 67 feet tall, or the height of a five-story building. The UDC's official printed program unveiled on the inside cover explains that at the time, it was the tallest column in the monument. All of the symbols pointing to white supremacy and white domination. The emblem of the Southern womanhood fitly stands, the immortal spirit of her land shining unquenched within her eyes and her hand uplifted and an eternal appeal to the God of justice and truth. Bold bronze lettering beneath this female figure is emblazoned with the motto of the Confederacy, with God as our defender. The UDC left no doubts that this monument was more than a memorial. It was a defiant declaration of vindication that looked both to the past and to the future. The Davis Monument was the crowning achievement established in Richmond's Monument Avenue as a living testimony for the lost cause that began with the placement of this initial monument to Robert E. Lee in 1890. By the turn of the century, Richmond leaders had planned an elaborate expansion of the city focused around a striking new avenue. Its construction would include a broad green tree-lined park running the full length that divided the eastbound and the westbound traffic. At major cross streets, the greenways would terminate at traffic circles, which would host monuments to the leaders of the Confederacy. By 1919, with the addition of a monument to General Stonewall Jackson, 
Richmond supporters of the lost cause had completed an homage to the recognized trinity of Confederate leaders. Generals Lee and Jackson, plus a tribute to Confederate General J.E.B. Stewart, dedicated with less fanfare the same day as the Davis Monument, who died before defending Richmond during the war. Wealthy right Richmonders flocked to this new development, building elaborate houses on what quickly became, in the first few decades of the 20th century, the most enviable street address in the city. By 1930, Richmond's white aristocracy had also uprooted seven of its prominent churches and replanted them in the shadow of the Confederate monuments. When West Richmond construction crews were not building and erecting Confederate monuments, they were relocating white Christian churches. Walking west on Monument Avenue just ahead of Stewart Circle is St. James Episcopal Church built in 1912. Continuing on, two churches flank opposite sides of Stewart Circle, each of them facing the the J.E.B. Stewart Monument, First English Evangelical Lutheran Church, and St. John's United Church of Christ. Farther west, near the Lee Monument, is Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. Between the Lee and Davis Monument sits First Church of Christ Scientist. Finally, the massive First Baptist Church taking up an entire city block, directly faces the Stonewall Jackson Monument, and St. Mark's Episcopal Church stands just around the corner. Monument Avenue with its blend of monuments to Confederate leaders, leading churches of major white Christian denominations, and imposing homes was carefully designed to serve as a living civic tribute to the Confederacy for Richmond's white elite and as a lost cause pilgrimage site for white people across the South. This vision was largely successful. A century later, it remains a leafy upper class, mostly white neighborhood dotted with tall steepled churches and a massive granite and bronze tributes to the Confederacy. As an official National Historic Landmark District, it still serves as a tourist magnet and it continues to make a cultural statement. As historian Charles Reagan, Reagan Wilson noted, Richmond was the Mecca of the lost cause and Monument Boulevard was the sacred road to it. Now imagine all of these churches turned in the direction of their Mecca, facing all of the heroes of the white supremacist pro-slavery cause something to think about. So this has been my reading on tonight. If you would like to uh, join me for conversation, there's a lot that could be said about that, um, especially with the things that we see happening now um, in Virginia yet again. Uh, Virginia has a pretty progressive governor who's trying to move things forward and move things along. But He's got to reckon with ground zero white supremacy. So whether that's Richmond, whether that's Jamestown, whether that's what Yorktown and Williamsburg, those three that are sent are uh, next to each other. He's got a lot to handle and a lot to reckon with because it is enshrined in that state. 
slavery codes enshrined in that state. So it's not easy removing and uprooting this thing called white supremacy because these people have built monuments to it. And so when we see these monuments come down across the country and the world, right? Sometimes people think it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal because those things were not just put there, um, you know, haphazardly. There was ceremony around it. There was homage around it. There was, there is some religious belief tied to it. So when you start yanking down these monuments, for some of these people, you are yanking down their faith. You are uprooting their faith in the fact that they believe that they're going to rise again. So for them, it is very personal um, to see these monuments come down. And I think sometimes we um, underestimate, right, people's heart that is tied to these things. And for them, when you tear those things down, you are in essence declaring war against them. A lot of them, ironically, like to use spiritual warfare terminology because they feel like, you know, they're up against or they're fighting the enemy (laughs) of pro-slavery. Yeah, the ideology. So for them, yes, they feel like they're in a war. They feel like they're in a war against the culture. And for them, culture means um, pro-equality. Culture means diversity, equity, and inclusion is an enemy to white supremacy. I'm going to say that again because I don't think some people get it. For them... They are in a war against diversity, equity, and inclusion because those things are the antithesis of white supremacy. (laughs) So in order for them to hold on to the, the idea of them being supreme and above everybody else, they can't roll with diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're, all, they're going to say it is anti-God. They're going to say it's anti-Christ because their God says that what was allowed to happen for 400 years to black people in this country was perfectly okay and still is okay. So when you have people that have these ideologies that are sitting in seats of power, that are on law enforcement um, payrolls, you will start to see them rise up. You'll start to see this attitude and this behavior arise because for them, the lost cause is a belief. It is a religion for them. It is tied to their faith. All right. Um, when I was preaching in Virginia at a church an old church, the Lord revealed that white men in politics and church made covenants in secret. Well, some of them were in secret lady, um, Apostle Sonia, but some of them were, I mean, out in the open, like the, the, the ceremony we just read about, that was a full blown out in the open ceremony, march, parade, children involved, everything. And then as we just learned, they, they relocated all of the mainstream white churches. They relocated them and built them 
in the center of town facing all of these Confederate monuments. They were telling you in so many words, these are our civic gods. These were our civic gods. So um, I see Lady Barbara. Let me see if I can uh, bring you in now. And I want to thank those of you who have tuned in. If you are just tuning in, I encourage you to catch the replay. Um, And if you have the book, White Too Long, it is chapter four that we're reading about these monuments that were set up in Virginia and how they began to construct the town around these monuments so that everything, um, their historic district all centers around paying homage to these to the confederacy um when i drove through through richmond i visited richmond a couple times i told my husband i know richmond is a it's it's a really black city right now but there's no way i could i could live there because the spirit of the confederacy is really strong there it really is um so shout out to all my friends that live in richmond you all are real ones (laughs) Because that is really, like they said, that is the mecca of white supremacy in Virginia. All right. I'm going to take Apostle Sonia. I need a camera from you. I don't see your camera. I'm going to start with Lady Barbara and then we will move to um, Pastor Ben and then we'll move to Lady Sonia. So we want to try to be very succinct with our commentaries tonight. So we give everybody a chance to say something. I want to thank you. If you have been listening by Anchor FM, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please join us in our live conversation, always at the page Daring Dialogues on Facebook. Anchor FM.